Thank you, Jessica. Well, good morning. I guess, uh, as Corky said, since there's no new faces here, I'd like to say good morning to all the old faces that are here. Uh, I wasn't thinking anybody in particular. Just a... When I was uh, growing up and about to get your license, one of the things that went along with that, getting your license, wasn't just learning how to drive, but learning how to navigate. That is kind of knowing where you're going. And it's funny because when you're used to, for 15 or 16 years, somebody driving you to and fro, a lot of times it just doesn't dawn on you that one day you're going to have to know actually how to get somewhere. And so when I first got my license, is the place, the license, the places that I thought I knew I could get to just like that. When I'm the only one in the vehicle, I thought, hmm, I probably should have paid closer attention. But when, uh, when I was growing up back in the day, the way you got places was with a map. You know, you just, you're going down the highway, and if you're not sure which exit to take or whatever, what route, you take out the 20 by 20 map, and you put it on the steering wheel, and you're... You're trying to see where to go, and uh, usually you try to map your trip before you went there, but there's always, things aren't always uh, like you think they're going to be. Well, then you, not so long ago, they came out with the GPS, Um, and Lisa and I held off for a while, but eventually we bought one of those GPSs, and um, those are pretty handy things. They will, you can even see your little car on the highway and a little display, and uh, they do a really good job at trying to get you where you're supposed to go. You know, in 0.3 miles, exit right on 68. In 0.2 miles, exit right on 68. In 100 feet, exit right on 68 and so forth. Uh, but they're not always right. Sometimes they cause a little tension. They'll take you the wrong way to get you to the right way. And uh, one time Lisa and I were looking for a subway on the way to the beach. And there was no subway there. And I was getting really upset because she's just telling me what, what do you, what do you call the Vera or something? What do you call those female voices that are on the Siri? Okay. That's the, that's the phone. It was some, it was anyway, it's a female voice. So I'm saying there's nothing here and she's just reading it to me. But um, anyway, if you, if you're in unfamiliar territory, it's a good thing to have, but uh, the GPS, uh, I liked it for a couple days, and then I just got to where I didn't like it at all. I, um, I in particular, did not like the voice of the woman that was telling me how to drive. <laughs> and the word that really got me was, if you, miss a, um, if you miss a turn or you don't do what they think you should do, they would say, recalculating, recalculating. It's like, ah. Oh. So it was short-lived. I went back to the old-fashioned way of just kind of knowing where you're going. Now now I use my phone, Google Maps and stuff, and it's awesome. I like it. I don't have a voice. I can just see where I'm going and stuff like that. But that recalculating thing, you know, just really bothered me. But I will say that if you're in unfamiliar territory, it was really good to know that you had something there that knew where it was going, had a good idea where it was going, and something there to tell you when you've gotten off the wrong path, you've gotten off the wrong road, you're going in the wrong direction, you need to do a U-turn or take a few rights and lefts and so forth. It actually was very comforting to have that. 
This morning, I'm going to talk about chapter nine of Nehemiah about repentance and repentance really, in a sense, is recalculating repentance. When we hear God's word and we search our hearts, uh, there may be some things in our hearts where uh, as a result of this morning's message, we might hear the voice, hopefully um, not an irritating voice, but a voice that says we need to recalculate. We've gotten off the path. And in order to arrive in the right place, in order to arrive where we really want to be, we can't keep going in this direction. We need to make some changes. This is the last sermon of three in chapter nine, the book of Nehemiah. And we've learned a lot about prayer. It's almost the entire chapter is almost a prayer. And we learned, first of all, about um, getting the gospel in our prayers, because this prayer has a lot of history in it. And the history is this. God's people have been perpetually unfaithful. God has been perpetually faithful, and that's the gospel. Man sins. He needs a sinner. I mean, he needs a savior. And God is the one and only savior. And then we learn a few pointers on the nature of prayer. It should be biblical. It should be God-centered. And it should be honest. And then we close with the idea that it should be repentant. And that's what we're going to develop this morning, this idea of repentance. And repentance is really just the obvious conclusion to the other things. If you've been talking to God and you're walking with God and you've been praying to him and it's biblical and it's God centered, that means it's about him. It's glorifying him. And then you get honest and you begin to. You've been exposed to God's word, and so you begin to see your life uh, compared to God's standards. We've been honest with ourselves. We realize that I'm not where I need to be with God. And so the obvious or logical thing is repentance. So that's what we'll talk about this morning. The interesting thing about repentance is it's a very common word in Christendom. But I don't know. I think it's one of those words that's actually hard to, to keep in our mind um, as far as really understanding what it is, I think it kind of blurs into other areas so much that we forget what true repentance actually is. So I want to look at what true repentance is this morning, primarily by looking at what repentance isn't. Because, again, it blurs things blur and merge so much that sometimes we think we may have repented and we haven't. Sometimes we might think getting emotional is repentance or or confessing a sin is, is true repentance, and it's not. So that's what we're going to learn about this morning. And the reason we open with just one song is I asked the worship team kind of last minute, didn't give them a lot of warning, I think maybe just a few days, but if they would just open with a song. And then after the sermon, what I'd like to do is just the, the altar's open, basically, if you feel like that voice is telling you to recalculate your life and you'd like to just come up here and talk to God, pray with God as we worship him with worship songs, then we would just to like to provide that opportunity for this church family, for this church body. So that's why our schedule's a little off this morning. I'm not going to read chapter nine. I've read it twice. You all have already put it to memory. So I'm just going to refer to a few verses in it. But first of all, repentance, true repentance, true repentance is not mere confession. Verse two in chapter nine, 
And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Israel's in a stage of reformation, basically. They are turning their hearts towards God and the Lord is blessing their obedience. He's being very gracious to them. And so they're kind of on their way up. It's nice to be in a book where things are getting better and better for a change. And so they're gathered as God's people. They've been practicing the feast. They've been listening to hours and hours of the word preached. They've been doing a lot of confessing and repenting and so forth. So here they are, the Israelites, and they stood and they confessed their sins in this prayer. A confession is a good thing. It's a biblical thing. It's a necessary thing for every Christian to confess our sins and our iniquities to one another and to God. We read that in God's word. We read that the Holy Spirit convicts us. Confession is basically an acknowledgement with God's standards. Here's God's standards. And Lord, I acknowledge that I am not in line with your standards. I've gotten off. I've turned the wrong direction. And I want to confess that and acknowledge it. It's basically, in essence, saying you're right and I'm wrong. Getting to that point where we can actually uh, see our transgression. You're right and I'm wrong. And confession can be a pretty hard thing to do depending on the degree of our sin. And confession can be a hard thing to do depending on the respect and fear that we have of the person that we're confessing to. I don't know about you, but I have had some pretty grueling Confessions that I've had to make in my Christian walk over the years, some heart-rending things in my lifetime. But confession's good, it's a good thing to practice, but confession is not the same thing as repentance. And a lot of times we think if we have confessed our sins, that we have actually repented of our sins. Confession, uh, repentance is an acknowledgement, I mean confession is an acknowledgement of sin, Repentance is when we change. Repentance is, confession is like starting the engine and it's ready to go. But it just stays there ready to go unless we repent. Repentance is when you actually make progress. It's when you take a step forward. It's when we're willing to change. Now, the thing, I think the dangerous thing is that through time, we can actually become pretty good at confessing. It can become a pretty easy thing. We can get more and more comfortable with it. And sometimes we can learn the scriptures really well and even have a sensitivity to sin, a a, a sensitive conscience. And um, maybe somebody, we become approachable and somebody might even come to us and want to point sin out in our lives. and And we're humble about it and we say, you're right. You know, that that's an area of my life. You're right. I confess that's a sin in my life. And it makes us look pretty spiritual, but doesn't mean we changed. We might just keep on doing that same thing. I I know in parenting and my kids are pretty much almost on their own now, um, all of them. But in parenting, it's a big task to get your kids to ask each other's forgiveness and to confess their sin. And when they do it, you think you've really accomplished something. And so we get real excited when our kids would acknowledge their sin. And a lot of times it involved forgiveness. And um, in our house, you didn't just say, I'm sorry. Or you didn't really just say, 
please forgive me, you had to acknowledge the wrong you've done so that you can learn the difference between the truth. So you would say, please forgive me for hitting you over the head with a baseball bat or something like that. And we would get all excited when that happened in our family. But then, you know, what, what would happen all, a lot of times is then they're right back at it again. So it was an awesome act of confession. But repentance means change. Repentance means I'm not going to do that anymore. Not only do I acknowledge this is not a godly thing to do. But I'm going to, I'm going to purpose to change that about my life. Now here's... I think a danger getting caught and confessing can become a habit of getting nowhere for all of us, because if we merely confess and do not repent, we have not changed. Then we haven't gotten anywhere. So confessing or getting caught and then confessing can become a habit of going nowhere if we do not repent. There's been many times where I have told my wife, you're right and I'm wrong and I'm sorry. But I didn't change. I acknowledged that I was wrong, but I didn't change. That's a hardness of heart. And, you know, it's it's tricky because we can look pretty spiritual by acknowledging our sin. And by knowing verses, we can look very humble and. And, and spiritual and really in tune with God. And people look and say, wow, you're so vulnerable and transparent. There's no pride in you to be that transparent. And you've confessed your sin. But that doesn't mean that there is change. A lot of times confession doesn't mean that we're so bothered by our sin that we will actually do something about it. It means we're bothered enough about it to confess. But the core issues are still there. So, you know, for me, I can literally be confessing to God about having eaten too much gluttony. Oh, Lord, I ate too much. I'm so sorry. I know that was wrong. And I'm thinking about my next meal while I'm praying that. Just being honest. Just saying. So what? That's a confession. It's a good thing. But there was not repentance or true repentance. So. Repentance is not mere confession. Secondly, repentance is not worldly sorrow. During their rough and rocky history, the people of God, you know the cycle, we saw it in Judges, and many times they'd get off the track and they'd cry out to God. And a lot of times they didn't mean it. Uh, They just were... Wanting to escape the consequences of their sin, they didn't turn their hearts towards God. But sometimes they did turn their hearts to God and they truly repented. In verse 28 of chapter 9, it says, Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. So they didn't just cry, they turned. And that's the operative word here because that's... In essence, what repentance means, repentance means I'm going the wrong direction. I acknowledge that. I see that I need to be going this direction. So I make a conscious choice and physical action, moral action to turn directions and head away from sin and turn towards God. So that is the key here. They didn't just wail. They didn't just cry about getting caught or cry about the consequences to their sin. They really turned their hearts 
towards God. And they began to grow a hatred towards their sin because they saw the separation that took place as a result of it. But, you know, a lot of times in the Bible, they just wail without turning their hearts. And a lot of times people today, we just wail and cry over the consequences of our sin or where it has taken us in life. But we fail to turn our hearts. So the, the, the key here is our emotion, the idea of grief and sorrow. What is a worldly sorrow? Scripture actually, the Apostle Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 7 takes us a little deeper thinking about our bad feeling over sin. Something that we probably wouldn't think of on our own. There's actually a difference in sorrow and grief in the way we feel about our sin. So here's the, how the Apostle Paul puts it. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. So he's acknowledging that within humanity there can be grief and bad feelings over wrongdoing and sin. But they produce different things. It, it, it depends on the motivation behind that feeling and that grief. But it acknowledges that not just Christians feel bad about sin. I felt bad about doing wrong things before I was a Christian. And we all have within us, because we're creating the image of God, a sense of right and wrong. Every culture, no matter what they believe in, even in false gods, they all have a sense of right and wrong because it was put there by God. Now, we suppress it and we twist it and we pervert it and we do everything we can to, to justify our sin. But nonetheless, unarguably, it is there. So not just Christians feel bad about evil. Most people feel bad about evil. If you know somebody that does not feel bad at all about evil, they feel no guilt or no shame, I would recommend you stand clear of that person because they're a sociopath. And they don't have any remorse over anything they do, and they need help. But as most of us have a good sense of right and wrong, even though we may try to twist it. How can... Um, Bad feel, or how can a bad feeling produce death instead of life? Well, Paul is saying that the worldly characteristics of sorrow are the same. You look the same. You're, you're hurt. You're torn up over what you have done and the hurt that you maybe have brought into somebody else is life. And that grief is real. But the desire to do something about it isn't real. The desire to do something about it isn't there. So what happens is that person, the worldly sorrow, is somebody who genuinely feels bad about their transgression but doesn't do anything about it or doesn't care to do anything about it. So where does that leave us? We're stuck. We're stuck in a sin. We're stuck in a bad place and a bad feeling, a real-life consequence, and there's no place to bring it either because we don't know or we're unwilling to bring our sin to the Lord and repent of it. And the reason it produces death is because you just get stuck in that sin. If we don't repent of it, we still have it and we're stuck in that sin. What does sin produce? Eventually, it produces all different forms of death. 
It's almost the definition of sin. I mean, I know it means to miss the mark, but you miss the mark. And what happens? You're going in the wrong direction. You're going in the direction of death instead of life. And if you continue on that path in that particular area, the close to death and destruction you get. And so just feeling bad about something and doing nothing about it is very destructive. And there's a lot of people in this world that don't know what to do with the feelings of grief they have. You know, we, we're all sinners and we've, I'm sure we've hurt somebody, we've, def- we've offended somebody very dear to us, we've done something in our lives that we really, really regret, even maybe as children. And what do we do with that bad feeling if we do not know how to take it to the cross? We just live with it, we try to, to, to numb it, we get, maybe try to get a cold heart or we deny it. It's interesting that in Hebrews, in describing how Christ is better than all things, Moses and angels and the law, and it says that he cleanses our conscience. And it's interesting how depraved man tries to go about cleansing their conscience, get rid of the true guilt, to get rid of the true shame that is there. What do we see in our world today? We see denial. We're... we're, In the midst of a culture that no longer acknowledges absolute truth. So I can't say that your lifestyle is any better or worse than mine. Um, So you have a lot of people that are stuck in this feeling of guilt and shame. And they don't know what to do with it. But they're being told it's okay. There's nothing wrong with you. You're a good person. That's not working for people. People have more and more problems today. Because I think some of it's got to do with. With the fact that we don't know where to take the evil that's in our own hearts. We don't know what to do with it. So the best you can hope for is to get invited on the Oprah show or something where professionals will tell you and encourage you and pump you up and pep you up. You're a good person. You have no reason to feel bad about that. That's no worse than any other thing. And they can say that because there's not supposed to be any standards of right and wrong. So if you have these desires, don't feel about them, whether it's transgender or homosexuality, whether you're 50, but I just feel like I'm, I want to be a 10-year-old. That's what goes on these days. All, the, the door is wide open when you, when you kick out absolute truth and a real standard of right and wrong, then people have a right to claim anything and to feel anything they want. So the whole argument with transgender is, well, I feel like a female on the inside, so that's what I want to be. But you can apply that. that, that this is just the beginning. You can apply that to any situation. And you see what's coming. So people now are 50 or 60, but they have the right to wear, um, what do you call the jammies with the feet in them and stuff? They, 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 they will... Onesies, they will literally be babies. They will act like babies because they'll say, in my heart, I feel like I'm just a child. And then they hire nannies to take care. I mean, it's just where is the end? This is real stuff. But when you don't know what to do with your emotions and your feelings and the wrong things, if there's no standard, then that's where we end up. Christ can cleanse our conscience. That is the one place not only where we can bring our sin, our burden, but even our sorrow and our grief. What a beautiful verse that we hear every Christmas. Um, well, we hear it different times of the year, but Isaiah 53. And we hear it during Easter. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. It's amazing because it's an invitation by God to say, I will take that dirty, filthy transgression. And, and Christ is saying, I'll pay for that. But he's also saying, and the feelings that go with it. You don't have to live in that, in that place of grief and sorrow when you bring your sin to Christ and ask forgiveness and repent. You can walk away set free. And so we can leave these things. I remember reading uh, years ago a little book by Jay Adams. You don't see much of him anymore or hear much of him, but he was a kind of a big deal. I don't know, 20 years ago, especially in the world of counseling. And they call it nuthetic counseling, which is basically he just used God's word, not the psychobabble stuff. He said, I'm just going to use God's word to try to heal people's hearts and souls. And he went into some mental institutions and he began to counsel there. And he found that there was a um, a high percentage of individuals that a lot of their mental problems came from some little sin that they committed somewhere in their life that was never uh, confessed or repented of. And it's just been in there and it, and it got twisted and perverted and they behave this way as adults because of something that was never properly handled of. Even little, even little things like hitting a brother or sister or lying to a parent or something like that. What do you do with your own personal misery when you realize that you have evil in your heart? Where do you take that? Where can you go in this world to cleanse yourself from that reality? There's only one place. It's the cross. And it's an invitation by God to say, I have borne this for you. Yes, it's real. It deserves punishment. It deserves death. And I love you so much that I will take that and the feelings that go with it. I'll bear those too. And so Christians, really, if we get in the habit of confession and repentance, should be the most freeing people on the earth, as opposed, opposed to those who uh, say, well, there is no standard, there is no right and wrong, and that's what makes me free. That's not what makes you free. That's what puts you in bondage. So people get stuck in this place, as opposed to set free, and it leads to death. It's a misery. I think probably the classic example of this in the scripture, obviously, would be Judas. Judas betrayed Christ with that kiss. And it became not about the money. He, he felt real sorrow, but it was a worldly sorrow. How so? Well, it became about principle. He felt terrible about what he did. He couldn't live with himself. He threw the money away. It wasn't about the money anymore. It was about his personal sin. And where did he take that grief and that sorrow? He didn't take it to God. He took it to a rope and a tree. And he hung himself. He felt so bad about what he did. That's an example of worldly sorrow. He was stuck. Rather than being set free, he was stuck in it. He could not bear it. He couldn't handle it. And so there he is dangling at the end of the rope. And I think in different degrees... Those of us that refuse to repent and are just stuck in things, we're just dangling at the end of a rope. We're just close to death in different areas of our lives and destruction. 
because the Lord provides us opportunity for us. So the good news is that Jesus is there to take our sins when we confess and repent and come to him. And then third, won't spend much time on this, but it's in the scriptures, so I'm going to mention it. But repentance is not about the other guy. Uh, What do you mean by that? Well, unfortunately, some of humanity can be so self-righteous that we actually want others to repent for their sins because we don't have any to repent of. And Jesus brings attention to this. It's what I'm, for lack of better terms, the other guy, uh, the other guy syndrome. Luke 18, 9 through 14. It's a very familiar passage. Jesus tells this parable. About self-righteousness because he knew that there were literally people in his midst that were trusting in their own righteousness. So here's the parable he gives. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus' conclusion is, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So the other guy comes up with this list of sins for everybody else that he's see he's noticing all these things that other people need to repent of. And he's totally clueless of his own sin. It's self-righteousness and self-righteousness blinds us to reality. And this person who's self-righteous, who thinks there's nothing to repent of, is unjustified in the sight of God. The person who is humble and repents is justified um, Mark Driscoll compares this person to a a sniper who gets you in their scope. And they're going to pump you with their scriptures that they have about the sin in your life. But Jesus calls this problem that you you have something in your eye problem. It's the plank in the eye problem. And in order to keep the safety on your gun, so to speak, he says, first look at your own heart. Look at your own life before you just... Tell everybody else to repent and judge them of their sin. First, you look at your own. Get the plank out of your own eye. Repent first. And then you can deal with it. And that kind of prevents this kind of self-righteousness. There's no special category of Christian that is beyond repentance. Helps keep the ground level. And it helps us to deal with one another on terms of grace and humility. And not self-righteous. But then lastly, repentance is not religious. Now, whenever somebody in evangelical circles uses the word religious, people get all bent out of shape because they say, I'm not religious. I just believe in Jesus. I don't believe in religion. And that's because it's come to be known only in its negative light. But scripture uses the word in the New Testament. It's used both in a a positive light and a negative light. And it basically just means a set of values that you're devoted to. I am religious because I am devoted to a certain set of values and you are too, like it or not. However, religion in a negative light gets very complicated because the danger is that we start trusting in our own devotion instead of the actual values 
of grace and mercy of Christ. So when we start trusting in the way that how devoted we are to God as being the foundation for our relationship, then that's where it gets misapplied, this idea of um, religion. And it's very dangerous because we're looking for God's favor by our works. Timothy Keller says, religious repentance at its core has a poor motivation. It says things like this. I want God to like me, so I'll repent, so he'll like me. Not knowing that God already loves you and he demonstrates his love for you in this. And again, even as believers, even as mature believers, we have to constantly preach the gospel to ourselves. I am in right standing with God because of his mercy and grace. Not because when I first got saved, I only have five minute devotions. And now that I've been saved for 20 years, I spend three hours a day in the word. God loved me while you are yet sinners. Christ died for you. That has to be the foundation for the acceptance that we have in Jesus Christ. It's not about our devotion. Keller goes on to say religious repentance doesn't understand that God doesn't just give gifts. God gives God. God with us. That's the Christmas message right there. He gave us himself. And he says, that's unbelievable. God, through Jesus Christ, has given us himself. The religious person says, I want to use God to get blessed. So I'm going to pray and repent in such a way as to manipulate him so he'll be happy with me and bless me. Not realizing that when God calls you to repentance, it's because God wants to give you himself as your greatest treasure. If we looked at the act of repentance, which I admit I don't like that word a lot. Because you're asking, you're getting in my face and asking me to change a sin that I've been holding on to. It's not something that I really want to get into. But if you look at it as God giving himself to us as our greatest treasure, highest joy as the center of your life. The reason for which you were made is to be connected to that God. So repentance is this incredible gift Whereby sinners can once again be um, rightly related to God, connected to God and walking in his ways by grace and mercy. So we have to be careful even in our act of repentance. Is this something I'm trying to do to gain favor? No, it's because I have violated something. God deserves an apology. And in order to walk in his ways and glorify him. So we repent not to get God's love. We repent because God loves us so much. There's a big difference there. So as we wind down, what does all this mean practically to us? How important is repentance in the Christian life? Do I repent as much as I should? Is it really that big of a deal? Because it's not always made a big deal in church circles and among Christian friends. Well, if we become a people or a church full of people that refuse to repent and just choose to stay in sin, then obviously we will grow sicker and sicker and die. Because that's what the scripture teaches us is worldly sorrow. If we if we refuse to repent of the areas in our life that were in sin, those areas Become dead. There's no life. So simply put, practically speaking, if we refuse 
to repent of the sin or sins that we know are ruining our marriage, our marriage dies. Or it survives to the point that we we repent. It may thrive in some areas, but the area that is in bondage to sin, that area has death, has destruction. So we want to repent of that sin and thereby bring the treasure of life into our marriage. The same thing can happen with um, sins that are ruining our family life. The sins, you know, among the dynamics of family and how we relate. If we refuse to repent of sins that are ruining our families, then our families do what? They break up and they die. That's what we see in our culture. And we see this happening in churches down to generations. Now, I have actually, as I was thinking about this sermon, I've been going to this church so long that I have the opportunity to now see second generation believers that I grew up with, their children. And I have seen, not just in my own life, lest I be the self-righteous Pharisee, but I have literally seen sins that parents did not conquer in their children. Same thing. And, and counseling the same sins of the parents passed down. Now, it's not that the kids, the kids make their own choices. But what I'm saying is things that are not changed, things that are unrepented of are passed down. And so now I I've been around long enough to see the same problems, the same issues in the next family coming up. You know, we have uh, the same choice that Joshua did when he was bringing Israel into the promised land and they were grumbling and they weren't sure they wanted to do this and might want to go back. And he said, you just got to choose you this day what God you're going to serve. And that's kind of what repentance is. It's, it's making a decision. No, I'm choosing God in this situation. If we refuse to repent of the sins that are ruining our friendships, our friendships die. If we refuse to repent of the sins that are, are ruining our future, we have no future. Our futures die. So sin, when not repented of, destroys. It ruins. It's, it kills by its nature. That is the very nature of it. That's what it wants to do. So that's why, as God's children, we not only want to understand repentance. We don't want to walk out of here thinking, hmm. We want to walk out of here realizing I need to make that a habit of my life. I need to be a believer that repents. It needs to become a part of who we are. That's how we receive God as our treasure. So I want to just close with this. It's an opportunity for us to examine our lives, examine our marriages, our families, our friendships, our workplace, our lives before God, our careers, our future, and talk to the Lord. Am I on the right path with the map I'm following? Or do I need to recalculate so that I arrive at the place that I need to arrive? And I know how sin works. And I know that already in our minds, uh, if you're like me, I already have lots of reasons why I shouldn't repent. Lots of little justifications. Let's just God speaks to us through his word. And it's our obligation to respond to what God speaks to us.
and obey in that area. Because if we are believers, we have the victory in Christ to overcome sin and walk in the newness of life. And that comes through repentance. So as we continue our time of worship, I think the guys have about four more songs to do. All I want to do is just say the altar is open. The altar is open if that's how you want to uh, come and recalculate. Get right with God. Get right with one another. Just obey the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And that's what brings life into our hearts. And that's what brings life into our church. And we want life. May God bless the preaching of his word. Guys, if you come up and lead us in worship.